passage this morning is from Luke chapter 9. It's going to be verses 18 through 27. If you're using the blue Bibles and the pew, it's on page 867 of those Bibles. So Luke chapter 9, page 867. And as you turn or scroll there, however you you use your text, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's be seated and take a minute to meditate on this word. Pray with me if you would. Dear God, I don't feel competent or adequate to teach a text as weighty as this one. This is a key defining passage for what it means to be one of your followers. It changes the course of uh, our expectations about so many things. And so I pray that you would help us see what you want us to see. I pray that uh, my words would just fall to the ground, blow away, and not be remembered. But I pray that your words would abide and that they would change us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So one of the joys of parenting especially of little kids, is that you get to teach them to do things and they, they copy you or imitate you as best they can. So that could be words, you know, like dada or mama, and there's like kind of always the fight of which one are they going to say first, you know. Or it's a fist bump or a handshake or a high five, but all the little gestures that you see them do are just, just fun little blessings and great parts of being a parent. It's just something thrilling about seeing a tiny person pick up what you give them. But something you quickly find out, you know, as you have kids, is that uh, pretty soon you see things emerge that make you turn to your wife or husband and say, did you teach them that? Who taught them that? Because parents love to get in their little toddler's face and be like, dada, say dada. But no one ever gets in their face and say, say mine, say mine, and then hit me with your tiny fist, you know. That's just, 
These things emerge before our kids start, and they start to display uh, what author David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian, but was a really insightful guy and had kind of an on and off interest in Christianity, calls the default mode of human life, which is assuming that I am the center of the universe. And so he actually works this out in a commencement address that he delivered at Kenyon College in Ohio. He says this. He says, the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. So in other words, he said, no one had to tell you to say mine when you were two years old. No one had to tell you to put yourself before other people. No one ever had to tell you not to share. Those things come naturally. They're our default setting, that I'm the center of the universe, and it all revolves around me, alone at the center of the creation. So uh, that's what we want to think about. That's what the world encourages us to think about. It's all about me, my choices, my freedom, my people. My inner toddler. In the last passage we read from Luke two weeks ago, we saw a crowd of people see Jesus miraculously provide them with food, and they got the same idea about him. So, uh, like Paul said, that event wasn't so much like a church picnic as it was like a political rally where, um, you know, it could have turned into a riot. The Jewish people were oppressed by the Roman Empire. They were tired of it. They were ready for a savior of some sort. And when they heard Jesus talking about, you know, the kingdom of God and saw him provide them miraculously with bread, they thought, this is the chance. John's gospel actually tells us that they tried to, you know, take Jesus by force and make him to be their king. They wanted to sort of sweep him up in this revolutionary fervor and start a revolt that was going to put them back in power in Israel. It was going to restore them to the center of the universe. They thought that the kingdom of God would be their wants and their desires projected out onto the world, championed by Jesus. Luke wants us to have that in context uh, in our minds as we read this passage today. See, this passage has two crucial conversations. It has one between Jesus and his disciples in a small group, and then a bigger one where Jesus talks to a larger crowd. And in both those conversations, Jesus addresses this idea of the default mode. Is that just what he's here for? Is Jesus just here to support the center of my universe and make my world a little more comfortable and a little stronger? Is that what he's here to show us and tell us? The first conversation starts in verses 18 through 20, if you look at those. It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So Jesus asks his disciples, Who do the crowd say that I am? Who do those people say uh, that I, I might be? And they give him some answers, but that's not really what he wants to know. He's just kind of priming them the pump. He's setting them up for the second question in verse 20. Who do you say that I am? He's asking his disciples at this point, from what you've seen of me, of all that we've been through, who am I? Who do you think that I am? And Peter blurts out, 
as Peter does, he's a blurter. Um, he says, you're the Christ of God. And in one sense, this is a big deal because Christ is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew Messiah, which means God's chosen king. So the Hebrew Messiah is the Greek Christ. They're two words for the same thing. Uh, it is God's special anointed king. This is the first time that Jesus' disciples see that this is who Jesus is. And so this is good news. They are very much making progress from where they've been before. But there's one problem. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Princess Bride. Um, if you haven't, don't worry about it. You know, I'm not going to ruin anything for you. But there's one character who responds to everything that surprises him with the word inconceivable. Inconceivable. By which he means not, hey, this thing is surprising to me, uh, or that's not what inconceivable means. It means it is impossible to conceive, to understand. And finally, another character says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And so he kind of corrects him. And so what Jesus' uh, response here and the conversation he has with a big group of followers shows him saying kind of the same thing. He says, you use that word. That's a good word. Christ is the appropriate word but I want to make sure it means what you think it means. Because our testimony from the disciples' lives, both before this event and even after this event, shows that I might not fully understand exactly what Jesus means when he uses the word Christ. So let's start with the rest of this conversation. This is verses 21 and 22. It says, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So Jesus basically says to Peter's, you know, in response to what Peter says, yes, and Jesus goes on to call himself the Son of Man, which is another title for the Messiah that we're going to see in just a second. But the, uh, the way that he goes on to talk shows that when the disciples call him God's chosen king, they have a mental image that isn't completely accurate. They see half the picture, they don't see the whole picture. And that term is so widely misunderstood in their culture that he doesn't even want the disciples using it. He says, don't tell people because it's just going to cause more confusion. It's going to cause more harm than good. Because here's where their mind would have gone when they heard the words Christ and Son of Man. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7. If you're using the Blue Bibles, it's on page 745. So Daniel 7, page 745, and we're going to see a vision that's given to the prophet Daniel. So Daniel sees in chapter 7, the ancient of days, that's a phrase for God the Father, in the glory of his throne room in heaven. And if you start in verse 13, Daniel sees this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees someone like a son of man. Hear it? That's where Jesus gets the term. Presented before the almighty God. And God gives this Son of Man a glorious, globe-spanning, time-conquering, eternal kingdom that encompasses all people, nations, and languages. Not just a, a redeemed Israel, but a redeemed entire world under his authority. 
See, the Christ wasn't just going to bring political independence from Rome. He's going to rule the entire universe in a perfect, glorious kingdom that is never going to end. And we see all over the Gospels that the disciples want to put themselves at the center of that kingdom with Jesus. He's there. I want to be there too. See, just a bit after this, they break out into an argument over who gets to sit closest to Jesus on his throne, because that matters, I guess. Uh, Later on, they're kind of walking down the way, and Jesus turns around and he interrupts his disciples who are having a whisper fight about which of them is greatest in the kingdom, and he has to rebuke them for that. In this same chapter, even, they go on to a Samaritan village, and it rejects Jesus, and the disciples say, hey, we could call down fire from heaven and just incinerate this whole thing. Like, that's, that's an option, right? We could do that. And it just as Jesus rebukes him, he says, no, you don't get it. See, what the disciples are doing is they're hearing about Jesus's glory. They're hearing about the kingdom. And in their minds, they're turning that into just a little twinge, my glory, my kingdom. They're thinking in the same way that their culture is thinking, that what Jesus is mainly after is about giving them political power. They think that he's a king in the default mode that they understand kings, which is primarily about making his people, whoever they are, more glorious. Now, I know that's completely foreign to us today to imagine that uh, we might come to Jesus because we think he's going to make our life better. Um, But that's the question that, or that's what these people bring to Jesus, is they're not coming to him to receive him on his own terms. They're coming to him because they think he's going to be good for something in their kingdom. I think Jesus is going to restore my marriage, and I'm going to stay in the game with him, you know, if he can do that for me. And if not, I'm gone. You know, I want him to make my kids moral because they're little rascals and I can't stand them, and someone needs to, you know, train them up the right way. Um, I want Jesus to help me learn to manage my money better. Um, There are principles that I suppose are good. I could use some self-control, and then maybe I can, you know, like save up and start getting wealthy again. Um, we can come to Jesus looking for him to make our kingdom better, looking for him to fit our story and make our story richer. So that's what the disciples are bringing to him. That's what uh, kind of a hidden assumption that he has to address and that he addresses with the crowd as well. And so let's see how he starts beginning to address it. So he says in verse 22, which we read already, he says, the son of man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So he says, I am going to suffer, and be rejected and be killed before I I am raised to glory. This is so foreign to the disciples that in another, uh, one of the other gospels, Peter actually draws Jesus aside and rebukes him, and says, Jesus, no, you're not. You're talking crazy. Um, He thinks he knows Jesus' story better than Jesus himself knows it. Um, It's utterly foreign to them. They don't get it at all. But then here in Luke, starting in verse 23, we see Jesus addressing a a bigger crowd now, a bigger group of followers. We see the second crucial conversation. And he says basically the same thing, but he applies it to his followers. And he does so with an image that would have made their stomachs turn. Let's look at verse 23 first. He says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, because of the long cultural dominance of Christianity in the West, we have crosses everywhere, 
you know, not just in churches, but on architecture and buildings and art. And you have tattoos. Um, you know, we even have the cliche of like, that's just her cross to bear, which usually means like she has annoying relatives. You know, it's Aunt Jane and her kids, my cross to bear. You know, so I don't have an Aunt Jane. I have an Aunt Jane. Just saying. Um, but uh, so b- because Christianity has been part of the dominant political and cultural powers of the world for a few hundred years, the cross is kind of a symbol of power. You know, it can be something that feeds the default mode by becoming this, like, tribal affiliation marker. But that is the absolute opposite of what the cross meant in Roman-era Judaism. It is the opposite of what his followers would have heard. Here's what it meant to them. Around the year Jesus was born in Judea, a large group of Jews revolted against the Roman Empire under a man that they called the Messiah. Um, We don't know this man's name. Um, He was killed fairly quickly. The revolt was crushed, and 2,000 of these rebels were crucified up and down the major roads around Galilee. 2,000 people. This sanctuary holds like maybe 400 if we were bursting at the seams, so five times the number of people in this room. Crucifixion was a means of execution so painful and shameful that many Romans were embarrassed to admit that they did it. Um, It was often referred to as kind of a euphemism. One guy just calls it the extreme penalty. Sometimes it's called the slave's penalty because a Roman citizen wasn't even supposed to be able to be crucified legally. It was reserved only for rebels and traitors. In crucifixion, Roman soldiers would strip someone naked. Again, humiliation is part of the point. They would beat them to an inch of their life, and then they would nail or tie them to beams of wood in painful or uncomfortable positions. Not just the one, but they would you know, get creative, if that's the right word for it, with ways to humiliate and hurt the people who were being crucified. And so then these people would leave them there. Uh, they would be left up as a public spectacle until they died of maybe asphyxiation, maybe just exposure. There were people who, the record of people who lived for days until they just dehydrated to death or just succumbed to their wounds. And this whole time, they're up there as a public spectacle, a sign of this is what happens when you cross the Roman Empire. This is what happens to enemies of the empire. It was an ultimate act, not just of killing or even torturing, but of dehumanizing and making a shameful spectacle of its victims. And often the victims would have to carry all of their cross or part of their cross, you know, out in this procession that was, again, part of the humiliating spectacle. One commentary I read said there are no known survivors of crucifixion and all we have of Roman literature. So if you pick up your cross and you head out somewhere, you're not coming back. You're going one place. In Jesus' day, that's what the cross is a symbol of. It was a symbol of the violent, unstoppable, dehumanizing power of the nation that was oppressing Jesus' own people. The closest symbol we could imagine today, and this is a sign that our society has come somewhere, that we don't have an exact uh, analog for this. The closest thing we have, and I can feel my stomach kind of twist up as I say it, would be that, you know, if we imagine Jesus ministered in the black community under Jim Crow and said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and tie a noose around his neck and follow me. If you're feeling any discomfort like I'm feeling, That's how his followers would have felt hearing this statement. 
hearing this call. So to put it back in the context we've been talking about, Jesus is saying the Christ, God's chosen king, isn't going to have the life that you think he's going to have. In this life, on this side of glory, he's not living the default human mode. He's dying to it. And if you're going with him on this side of glory, so are you. You're dying to that default mode too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a German theologian, summarized this by saying, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer lived in Germany when the Nazis came to power, and he actually left Germany for England. He got a way out and then felt convicted about that and went back to serve his own people and be part of an underground resistance. And he was eventually arrested and killed in a concentration camp for resisting Hitler as part of his call to be a faithful Christian leader in his country. Christ bade him come and die, and he did. In the three verses after this, um, which are the last three verses that we're really going to look at today, Jesus clarifies what he means by this saying. He builds on it, and he does that really by outlining a choice, a way to live that's different from the default mode. So he says, in essence, there's a fork in the road. There's one way is going, you know, the way that we all know, the way of my own kingdom, you know, everything is building for me, working for me, serving me. And then there's this other way. He says, I'm going this other way. I want you to see what it is so you can understand what it means to follow me. And I want you to see where it goes, where both of these roads go. So three choices that he offers his people. The first choice is to live your life for your sake or for Jesus' sake. To live your life for your sake or for Jesus' sake. This is verse 24. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So to save my life is to live it for my sake, for my good, like I'm the center of the universe. It's about taking my appetites, my comforts, and my safety here and saying, yes, please, and more, please. Bring it on. Add it in. You know, let's build up the Joseph Ray life and resume. My time is mine. My money is mine. My energy is mine. And I'm investing those things to increase my safety, my comfort, my significance. I want my best life now. That's what that means. Now, most of us are so far removed from real physical danger that this sounds meaningless, you know. But if we were contemplating flying to the Ukraine or the Middle East, or for Christians who are hearing this in India or reading it in China, this means something completely different. This makes a lot more sense, the contrast that Jesus is saying. More Christians were killed for their faith in the 20th century, the 1900s, than in every other century before that combined. So that's just a thing to put things in perspective. So for us today, the question is, what am I living for? If I'm not having to worry about physical suffering, what am I doing with my time, my energy, uh, with my resources? Um, you know, am I giving up anything for Jesus' sake, or do I look exactly the way my non-Christian neighbors do? Um, is there anything where I'm taking on responsibilities for his kingdom or for other people that you know, someone outside the church is not? Is there any form of suffering that I'm willing to take, or is it just still all about me? It's all about me. That's the choice. That's what he's asking his disciples to consider. One writer sums up kind of the call this way. He writes, lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. 
Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children or my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. So this is, I can give or I can grasp. I can offer what I have to others or I can claw as much of it as I can together for me. That's what it means to live for Jesus' glory versus my own. The second choice is to live for this life or for eternal life. To live for this life or for eternal life. That's in verse 25. Jesus says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The key words in this passage are all financial words that you might see in a record of a business transaction. So profit, loss, gain, forfeit. Jesus is saying, your life is organized around the pursuit of something. You have a little economy in your own life of your time and your choices and your resources, and it's building towards something. It's building a portfolio of some sort or other. And he says, on the one hand, it might be gaining the world. You know, it could be that I'm trying to build up my wealth, my fame, my honor, my comfort, that I am investing, again, in me and in mine. Or it could be that uh, I'm investing in eternity. And he says that you can gain all you want in the world, but you lose or forfeit your very self. You lose or forfeit eternal life with God the Father, with Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit at the cost, at the price of gaining the world. And so the question for his followers, for us, is, am I investing in a kingdom here that's going to end, that's going to outlive me by maybe a generation at most? Or am I investing in a kingdom that's never going to end? Are my time and my money and my energy going toward making me rich, famous, or comfortable? Are they going toward seeing God, God's kingdom spread through making disciples of the nations and through caring for the poor? What's the economy of my life building toward. The Apostle Paul began his life as a promising young man named Saul. Saul was a zealous young Pharisee with a good background and a good education. Um, His people weren't in political power, but they had relative peace, and he had a bright future in that world. You know, in our day, he probably would have had a strong career in ministry and probably a popular podcast. You know, he could have been comfortable, had a comfortable life in ministry. But listen to what he says near the end of his life, after Jesus became his king. He says this, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he says, my life is of no value to myself. It's worthless to me, in my own estimation, for my own needs. As long as I can finish my ministry that Jesus gave me. That's what's valuable, he says. The third choice that Jesus offers is whether we're ashamed of Christ or we boast in him. Whether we're ashamed of him or boast in him. That's in verse 26. Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory 
and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So like we said already, the cross wasn't just a means for the Romans to torture and kill their enemies. It was a means to shame them as well. There's actually a bit of Roman graffiti we have preserved. Uh, it might be around from around the year 200. It's scratched into plaster, which like shows some dedication. You know, it took some time. And it shows a man with his hands raised toward a figure hanging on the cross. And it has the text, Alexa Minos worships his God. So it's actually the first piece of anti-Christian art, if you call it that, that uh, we have record, you know, to be generous with the term. But what it shows, apart from someone hating Alexa Minos so much that he scratched graffiti into, you know, plaster, uh, is that the Romans thought the idea of a crucified God was utterly shameful. And the Jews also thought a crucified Messiah was by definition a failed one. So you were crucified, you died, you aren't Messiah anymore. That's not how the story goes. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So there was a weight of scorn that the early Christians carried around apart from any physical danger that they might have faced. Now that specific idea of a crucified Savior doesn't have the same shame it did then, but there's plenty of shame heaped on Jesus' people for other reasons today. So if you take his teachings about marriage and justice or his lordship or his grace seriously and talk about them openly, um, you will be called by turns, you know, bigot, loser, narrow-minded, Marxist. Your temptation is going to be to kind of sweep your affiliation with Jesus, or at least the embarrassing parts, under the rug to kind of hide them and not have to talk about them so you can still move in the circles comfortably where you want to belong, to laugh along when others are mocked, or maybe, like Peter does later, to deny altogether that you belong to Jesus. And Jesus says, if that's your choice, you can make it. But if you look at how verse 26 ends, he says, Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This isn't a matter of spite or revenge, where if you mock me, I'll mock you. This is Jesus saying, if you really care about these other things so much more than you care about me, then you didn't have me to begin with. You didn't want me to begin with. And why should you have me now? Why should we belong to one another if we didn't belong to one another then? Jesus says, you carry the cross like I did before you wear the crown. This doesn't mean that every time people mock you, you're doing something right. You know, right now, every public figure has like 50% of the country who hates them at any given time. So mockery is no measure of worth. Uh, Peter warns against that in one of his letters. He says, if you suffer because you're a fool or a jerk, that's on you. That didn't have any value. Um, but if you're willing to endure scorn for Jesus's name and Jesus's words, if you care more for his glory than the glory of others, you'll share in his glory. If all this sounds heavy, it is heavy. And it's supposed to be heavy. This is one of the times where Jesus is not saying, come to me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. He is laying a weight on people who would follow him. So that's the way that this is supposed to feel. Maybe you heard that Christianity was supposed to ease our spiritual and emotional burdens. And you're thinking, this is not what I signed up for. This is not why I came to visit here today. And it is true that Jesus demands more of you as his followers than you'd ever think that you could give. Jesus calls more from us than we could imagine. But the kingdom of your own soul, your default mode, the default mode of the world, can not really give you anything actually. You know, it's like maybe a little bit more marginal happiness in this life, but then that's it. 
And probably not even that. It just makes you miserable the more selfish that you become. We're going to close with a passage from the book of Revelation chapter 5. So Revelation has a series of visions given to one of Jesus' disciples named John. Um, You don't have to turn there unless you just want to. I hear pages turning. Feel free. No need. Um, But uh, John has a vision where someone says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He says there's a victorious lion to look at in the throne room of heaven. And John says he looks, but instead of a victorious lion, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That the lion that had conquered is also the lamb who had been slain. And everyone in the vision erupts in praise when they see this. They don't mourn of like, oh, we thought he was going to be victorious. Look what happened. They worship him, and they say this from verses 9 and 10. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, Jesus didn't just suffer and die and rise again like he said he was going to do. He suffered for us. He died for us, carrying the weight of our sin under God's wrath into hell itself. That's why he's a slain lamb. But that wasn't the end of the story. It says that he rose again in victory, and once again, he did that for us, taking us with him into heaven itself, into the throne room of God, to one day come back and renew the creation to make all injustice gone and all things right, restore the world beyond its original glory to something perfect that can never be destroyed again. And his people, the people who trusted him, not the people who did this perfectly, Peter is going to go on and be ashamed of Jesus three times in Jesus's deepest hour of need. So it's not to the people who do this perfectly, but to the people who are willing to repent, to turn back, and to take up their cross again and follow the pattern that Jesus did because they trust him. To those people, it says that Jesus grants to be kings and queens and priests forever over the new creation. That there will be a time where we live with him forever if we're willing to die with him now. And our eternal life there, because of his grace, will be glorious. Let's pray together. Jesus, you call us to die to ourselves so we can live with you. You call us to follow your pattern to come and die, which for some people might mean the ultimate extreme of actually dying. But for many of us, uh, it will just mean being willing to let our kingdoms go because we care so much more about yours. Jim Elliott, the missionary who gave his life for you, said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We cannot lose your grace. We cannot lose your kingdom because you ensure it. You make it happen for us. So I thank you for that grace. I pray that we could trust in you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.